0: And it's year two. Hello, internet friends. Didn't see you come in there. Uh, Welcome to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Boel.
1: And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, did you just do the whole, like, (laughs) Mr. Rogers, like, oh, hello there, neighbor. Didn't see you come in.
0: (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't say I was doing the Mr. Rogers, because I would have done the voice. But uh yeah, doing the doing doing one of the great bits. The the whole oh, hello non corporeal entity. Didn't see you come in there.
1: <laughs> I just I just want it understood. Um, I deeply love all of our listeners. And if any of you show up unannounced in my in, in in the little room I record in and I'm not expecting you, I may throw knives at you. So <laughs> just putting it out there's it's in my pocket. if i have a pocket i probably have a knife if i probably have a knife i will probably throw it at you if you walk into my home unannounced i love you all
0: you're famous for uh at least in in our circles you you are famous for always having a knife on your person
1: it's just you know what i i don't feel i don't feel right without it i just let's be fair i mostly use it to cut fruit (laughs) like the amount of times that i have used it on a person are like i think i have used it a couple of times to help people lance wounds i have never used it defensively but i'm ready to if i need to
0: well, that's important that's fair i got sure, no compunctions yeah. with that
1: well <laughs> also like you do production work how many people do you know who just have various knives and multi-tools and all manner of crap on their persons at any given time
0: oh you know what that's very true if we're if we're counting like say a leatherman then i am i'm equally armed most of the time
1: just saying a leatherman's got a huge ass knife on it (laughs) i have my own leatherman i just don't carry it around with me all willy-nilly because quite frankly it is aesthetically real ugly it looks like you're one of those like Middle-aged dudes who carries around a cell phone on their belt, like Ron Swanson.
0: Okay, okay. Continue, but then I got a counterpoint.
1: No, I'm just saying, like... And granted, my Leatherman does not have the nicest of carrying cases. Like, it's fine. It's a little nylon carrying case. has the Leatherman logo on it. Uh, For those who don't know, Leatherman is a really, really nice multi-tool that's pretty commonly used by people who regularly use multi-tools. It just looks kind of ugly like just to have something clipped to your belt like that
0: it, what's your counterpoint? well so it may, it may look ugly but it, it, and i was going to bring up the cell phone too like once you've got a, a cell phone in the holder you've got a leatherman and then really you only need like one or two other devices you know maybe it's your your keys on a carabiner for the purpose of of what i'm talking about maybe it's a fanny pack but Really, when you think about it, then you're you're almost at utility belt level. I was gonna
1: say, is this is this some kind of segue into yeah. low rent Batman? Like, <laughs> yes,
0: yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> like if Batman had a mortgage payment, that's what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, if if Batman was a construction supervisor, that would that would be his utility belt.
1: That is a nightmare. <laughs> that said, I, I I'm thinking about this, and I'm like. Okay, so a conversation I had with Stephanie recently. We went out to a an outdoor, like, plant sale place where, like, local, local um, florists and farmers and garden folk uh, basically gathered on the main street of a nearby town to Asheville uh, and just set up booths, and they were selling, like, plants and plant accoutrement. So you could buy, like... Like we left and we bought like a mint plant and an aloe plant and like a little fern, just some like house plants. Um, some of which you can eat and some of which are just really pretty around the house. It's nice to have plants around. But we went out there and you know my my wife is fair skinned. You talked about you know your own experiences with sunburning, but you know I married I married a ginger woman, uh, and so the sun is no joke. We take that shit very seriously. And we, she did not have extra sunscreen in her car. I keep extra sunscreen in my car specifically for her. She, we took her car. She did not have extra sunscreen. And on the way home, I was like, hey, would you like me to make you like a bug out bag? Not specifically for the purposes of like, oh, shit's going down. Take this (laughs) bag and run. Yes, conceivably you could use it for such. But I would also include things in it like sunscreen, like antibacterial wipes, like maybe some water bottles, probably a pocket knife, uh, things that would be useful to have if you just find yourself caught out somewhere and you don't have these things. Feminine hygiene products, example. Sure. Like, just things that would come in handy. And, and she agreed to let me do this, so I'm going to, like, put stuff together, but... Honestly, the, most of the stuff in there is going to be, like, the kind of things you'd put in a basic overnight camping bag, probably. A whole lot of just-in-cases, but most of what she's going to use it for is to pull out, like, sunscreen or bug spray or a water bottle when she needs it, you know? So your utility bag concept is just the person who wears their bug-out bag, but, like, around their waist.
0: All I'm saying is, don't you want to feel just a little more like Batman? I do. Now, granted, I don't do this utility belt concept. I, I stop at the Leatherman, but 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 if you want to feel like Batman, go ahead and feel like Batman. It's it's easier than you know putting on a cowl or getting a butler. I th-
1: I, I kind of want to do like okay. I'm generally opposed to doing you know excess research while on the podcast. Like even though I have two computers uh, directly in front of me, but. I'm going to just do a quick Google search, and hello, Batman fanny packs. Andy, I have your Christmas present. Yes. Excellent. (laughs) Oh, my God, and there are options. Everyone out there, right now, like... If you're driving like pull over for a second (laughs) if you're doing other stuff like just pull out your phone i want you to google batman fanny packs some of these design okay there's like animated series batman fanny pack there's like adam west batman fanny pack there's a neil adams style batman fanny pack like there's just a picture of a guy in a entire batman outfit wearing a
0: batman fanny pack that guy's my hero
1: that's oh dear
0: um, well, I know what kind of father you're going
1: to be one day, these are Andrew.
0: Amazing.
1: Oh, God. Oh, of
0: course, I'm white.
1: <laughs> so you're going to wear the fanny pack?
0: I am quite sure at some point. I mean, hopefully they come back into style. We we got real close with hipsters. Oh, hello. Um. The superhero belt. I'm, I'm also looking in there. So somebody's taken this idea to its logical conclusion. Now, this is Superman colors, which is just, a a waste, but but okay so the superhero belt is uh i'll 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 totally wear that that's that's like the manly fanny pack that's like uh how i have gun old spice because i i can't just have shampoo that that appeals to the same part of my masculine insecurity
1: (laughs) gun old spice so what, like, so your armpits smell like a Glock? What?
0: With all new flavors like banana, fizzbitch, and gun! You've had the worst, now try the thirst! Oh, yeah, you know, it's like, it, it, so So I, I'm mixing bits here, but for anyone unfamiliar, it's, you know, the joke of how, like, women's shampoo is, like... You've got the shampoo, you've got the conditioner, you've got all the different kinds for all the different things, and they all smell like coconut or raspberry or or something absolutely delightful. And then you go over to the men's section, and you've got Old Spice, and then you've got like the 5-in-1 shampoo, conditioner, hair wash, gun-scented, blue, electric, bottled monstrosity. You want to know the worst part
1: is, like, anyone out there who's ever read about the pink tax, like, I guarantee you, those women's products cost more, and they are probably chemically identical to this gun-scented, hair-body-conditioner-wash monstrosity. Probably. Uh. uh... <laughs> you know, it's funny, because we have a fairly light-hearted show coming up, and, and, and you've just depressed me. Out of my mind, Andrew <laughs> I was, Richard. I
0: was about to say. Do we? Uh, do we need to get into it? Just to, to, before before I send you too much farther down into the deep dark existential pit.
1: Uh. Okay. Sure. This ha- le- dear listeners, for the first time in love hate relationship history, I'm going to go into the segments just for the own, just for my own edification and well being. Because Andy has once again depressed the living shit out of me. And this time he didn't even have to tell me how his life was going to do it. Ah. Uh, By the way, I am currently drinking tea out of a Wonder Woman mug that was gifted to me by my wonderful sister-in-law. So thank you, Jackie. I have a Wonder Woman mug. It is infinitely cooler than the Batman fanny pack that Andy will soon one day be wearing.
0: Debatable, but I'm not going to fight you too hard on that.
1: So... Love-hate relationship. We have three segments, not counting this weird little uh, douchebag buffer uh, that we like to do up at the top just to get people to stop listening uh, if they're assholes. So uh, first segment, we're going to talk about something that one of us loves. Uh, In this particular case, it's my turn to do that. Uh, Second segment, we're going to dive into a topic that one of us dearly hates. And the third segment, we're going to turn it to you our fantastic listener base, for a question that you have provided to us. And that one might actually downturn this. But I think our topics today are fairly lighthearted. Uh, so, Andy, with nothing further, uh, it is my turn to do the love?
0: Yes, correct. Do I, did, okay. did I lose you?
1: <laughs> no, 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 you're good. I'm trying to make pauses in my speech so that, like, you can, you can talk and shit, you know, so...
0: Oh, don't, worry, don't worry, when I need to talk, I'll just scream over you, as is our custom. Okay,
1: <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Like, I'm glad we have a dynamic going. So, as I always like to do, and this one's going to be fairly easygoing, I like to always open by asking you, Andy, a question, just to kind of segue in. Uh, and this is a simple one. Andy, I want to just ask you, who's your favorite songwriter? I- I'm specifically not talking about performer or singer. If they do perform or sing, that's cool. But I just want to know who is when you think songwriter who is the absolute pinnacle of the profession for you
0: so when i think songwriter there are a few a a few things that come to mind i think my personal favorite is probably jim steinman who okay we I, i i keep like getting gun shy about talking about bad out of hell and maybe we'll get into it a little in this topic but you know jim steinman is the composer songwriter who created one of the greatest rock albums in my humble opinion you know he he's the guy behind meatloaf for Mm -hmm. all of our older listeners who remember who meatloaf was his name was robert paulson (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah i mean i i I think jim steinman or to take it in a completely different direction maybe alan rice who is responsible for all the wonderful disney songs of our childhood
1: you mean alan menken and tim rice
0: yeah <laughs> okay. No,
1: I'm actually okay with that because, you know, Alan, Min- Alan Mencken and Tim Rice wrote a bunch of shit together. Before that, Alan Mencken and Howard Ashman wrote a bunch of stuff together before Howard Ashman passed away. So, songwriting duos, I will totally take that. Like, I think that is legit and also something highly underrated. So, um, I am a fan of both of those as well. So, the lead in here is I wanted to talk about my personal favorite songwriter. And,. I'm gonna be upfront, uh, just like I was upfront with you, Andy. In my notes, is this one is largely a way for me to not just talk about this one individual's career, um, but also to kind of talk about songwriting, actual professional songwriters, people who don't tend to perform and get credit for the songs that they do write. I wanted to talk about that as a larger concept, but I'm gonna focus my discussion specifically through my favorite songwriter and that's a man by the name of desmond child so are you familiar with desmond child at all andy
0: that's a top tier name Mm -hmm. but i am completely unfamiliar with it other than this man sounds badass instantly
1: right okay so uh just a little bit of brief bio and some of what uh desmond child has worked on uh so he was born in 1953 in gainesville florida to Hungarian and Cuban ancestry. His mother was actually Cuban songwriter Elena Casals, who American most American music consumers might not be familiar with. I'll be honest; like I have a fair sampling of Latin American music um, just by virtue of how I grew up and I don't I've heard her name before, but I don't really know much about her. But the point is she was a professional songwriter. His music his music career uh, began when he was 22. An R&B pop act that he started called Desmond Child and Rouge in 1975. They did have a couple of minor hits. They, they had a song that charted at, I think, number 51 on Billboard. They had a song that was on the soundtrack to The Warriors. Ooh, um, okay. Yeah, by all, by all means, they didn't do bad. They were never a top-tier act, but they they had some minor hits. They're, they had two albums, both of which were... Critically acclaimed, but, you know, didn't sell too fantastically, uh, and they did end up breaking up five years later in 1980. Uh, So that's kind of where Desmond Child got his start in the industry, but the more important thing is what he did with that start. In 1979, as his band was kind of in the process, like heading towards breaking up, he tried his hand at working with another group, specifically KISS resulting in and i don't necessarily defend this song though i have to admit (laughs) it's it's got some jamminess to it but this was kind of his first foray into writing for other artists uh the disco oriented hit i was made for loving you and since since having so much success with i was made for loving you which again is the best selling song kiss has ever released that is their best selling single if i remember correctly beth might come close or might just just exceed it um but at the time that it came out it was the singular best that kiss had ever done
0: not 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 love gun (laughs) Uh... i'm sorry i just i can't pass off an opportunity to remind everyone that kiss had a song called love gun about paul stanley's dick
1: (laughs) i actually once uh explained to Stephanie while we were driving somewhere uh, that the song Love Gun existed and she was like, how does this song exist? And I pulled up the lyrics and just read them to her and she's just like, how? (laughs) How is this a thing? And I looked her dead in the eye and just went cocaine in the 70s. Pretty much. Yeah, no, essentially. By the way, uh, Desmond Child continued to work with Kiss and uh, this among the songs that he did with kiss other than i was made for loving you he always did he also did heavens on fire king of the mountain uh Uh, all night radar for love let's put the x in sex which is arguably a dumber song than either love gun or i was made for loving you certainly
0: a worse title can't defend the sure
1: yeah no absolutely not um And I know that's a weird thing for me to talk about, given that I'm saying this guy is my favorite songwriter, but his work with Kiss, I mean, the man's successful, just like Kiss is successful. It doesn't always mean all of the work is top-tier quality. I would certainly argue his work with Kiss does not represent the best of his work. And to launch into that, I'm going to say that um, since 1979, when he did get started with all this... He's basically made his living as a writer, co-writer, and producer to various artists. Uh, he helped launch the careers of Bon Jovi, Clay Aiken, and Ricky Martin. And he helped relaunch the careers of Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Cher, and Meatloaf. Uh, he's written for everyone from Cyndi Lauper to Micah to RuPaul to Leanne Rhymes to Bonnie Tyler to friggin' Dream Theater. Hmm. Um, yeah, he wrote, I Hate Myself for Loving You. For Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. But he also wrote How Can We Be Lovers for Michael Bolton. He did Waking Up in Vegas, which is the singular best Katy Perry song. And I will fight people on that. That is the best song of Katy Perry's entire catalog. It is a fantastic song because it's Desmond Child. And I actually have a small story to go with that song. Um, but even along with that, he worked on Cisco's The Thong Song. He has... Definitely had uh, an extremely varied career.
0: But, but um, at the same time, he's, he's clearly got a type. Like, he, 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 you he know, you works can... in a certain, certain section of music.
1: Sure. I mean, so he co-wrote and produced Bad Out of Hell 3. But, I mean, on top of doing that, he also wrote Spanish language songs for Shakira and Alejandra Guzman. Sure. Like... It, and it's interesting. Like I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into this, but oh no, I can get into this now. I mentioned Katy Perry's "Waking Up in Vegas," and I think about that song in a very particular way because I was aware of Desmond Child's career for a long time. I think the first time I discovered anything about him was actually watching like an Aerosmith documentary. And Aerosmith talking about their 80s comeback, you know, which kind of got kicked off by the collaboration they did with Run DMC to cover Walk This Way.
0: Sure.
1: But after that, um, to, to hear Steven Tyler put it, he said at the time that, like, he was so, he was so fucked up. He was so, like, exhausted and strung out from all the drugs. And it was the 80s. Aerosmith was way beyond, you know, Toys in the Attic and all of that success. And he said that he sat down with Desmond Child to write and they were working, they were working on songs. And again, Steven Tyler said that he was at the point with writing where he couldn't even like rhyme scheme. He couldn't even be like shoe, blue, too. Like he couldn't even do that at the time.
0: There was nothing in Al Capone's vault,
1: but it was in Geraldo's vault. Oh! That's how messed up he was. And he said that um, the moment of realization for him was he was sitting there with Desmond Child and they were working through some music that the band had come up with and they were writing lyrics. And Desmond Child came up with the line Cruising to a Bar on the Shore. And Steven Tyler saw that line and immediately went, Her picture graced the grime on the door. And then they ended up writing Dude Looks Like a Lady in that entire session. That was one of the most important hits of Aerosmith's 80s comeback
0: undoubtedly no i am yes. sitting here humming it to myself uh with the mic muted to be perfectly honest <laughs>
1: yeah she a long lost love it for, yeah that whole and 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 you know desmond child worked with aerosmith to co-write they wrote love in an elevator they did i'm pretty sure they did ragdoll together um they did all those big like 90s hits you know angel and crazy right. and hole in my soul like They worked on all of that stuff together. And a lot of that, um, some of it was, you know, Aerosmith writing with other people. Desmond Child produced a lot. But he was involved in getting Aerosmith, you know, kind of back in that mainstream. And Aerosmith is one of those bands that's had basically, what, three or four heydays, essentially. Yeah. And Desmond Child was a huge part of that happening. So that's what kind of put me onto his existence, and, and I consumed a bunch of his stuff. I was like, okay, basically all of Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. Like, almost all of it was co-written with Desmond Child. You know, he did the You Give Loves the Bad Names and the Wanted Dead or Alive. Yep, and, and all the way through, like, It's My Life. Like, Desmond Child has had his hands all over Bon Jovi's catalog. And I remember... Like, I, I would listen to all this stuff, and and I would hear, you know, the Rat album that he produced, and the Michael Bolton work that he had done, and I remember listening to Katy Perry's Waking Up in Vegas when it came out, and I didn't know anything about the song. I like Katy Perry a lot. Um, this was a period of time, like, post uh, I Kissed a Girl and Hot and Cold, but, like, pre-Roar, like, that period of time... Sure. and I remember hearing Waking Up in Vegas and it was the first time I'd ever heard a song and I was like this is a Desmond Child joint like I didn't even need to look it up I could hear I could hear the big loud like rising like rising note uh, opening the chorus the the way that it segues through the verses the way that it builds the structure of it uh, Desmond Child has, and I don't have enough music theory to honestly like break it down in a technical sense. And I'm not sure that anyone's interested in hearing that anyway, but it was the first time that I had listened to this guy. I had listened to this guy's music so much, both his pop and his rock stuff. You know, he did Alice Cooper's Poison and Trash and House of Fire, which are very Alice Cooper joints, but they're also very poppy. Um, the whole Ricky Martin catalog. I'd listen to all this stuff, and somewhere along the line, I finally hit a point where I just went, okay, yeah, no, this is a Desmond Child song. I can just hear it. I can just hear his fingerprints in this music. And that was a really big moment for me because I was kind of, like, solidified in my fandom of him where I just kind of realized how Prince has that for me. Sure, yeah. You can tell a Prince joint. You can tell that Prince wrote Nothing Compares to You. Even though he, sure, he did a version of it. That version was not released until after his death. But you could just, there's, there's you could tell with the nuances of the music that that is a Prince joint. You can tell that all over all of Sheila E.'s records. And Desmond Child doing Waking Up in Vegas was the first time that I recognized that in a songwriter. And that's because he has this incredible just hit your right in the face, danceable, groovable style that I, I've never been able to properly articulate, but I just know it's hits, you know?
0: No, absolutely. And I, I mean, it's, it's it's undoubtedly impressive to sit here and, and if for nothing else, for, for, for Ricky Martin, live in the Vita Loca for the thong song and for, the Aerosmith jams we've mentioned. This is a man who I don't think there is a person over the age of 11 alive who has not heard this man's work. And I didn't know his name.
1: Yeah. I mean, even think about, think about the Michael Bolton stuff, you know, that's a whole nother genre that, a lot of the a lot of the rock people aren't really going to be thinking about sure but you know my mom has heard these michael bolton songs that he's worked on
0: no i think i think it's amazing and i'm i'm very thankful for you for bringing the man on to the show to discuss today cuz it's just this opens up something that i've often thought about and and never really looked that much into but but the modern music scene not even the modern music scene, the the industrial music scene is a very complex, nebulous entity when it comes to who actually does what. And, you know, you've got the band, but does the band write their own songs? Oh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Does the band write their yeah. own music? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And here's, here's one of the... I mean this as a compliment, but puppet masters of, uh, of, of a, a whole bevy of eras of, of music. And I, I, I think I'm interested in exploring and learning more about that. And, and hopefully other people are too, but I just, I, I think it's exceptionally interesting that this guy just, not only makes his money writing songs because that's that sounds a little anonymous and that sounds a little a little oh you're you're some guy locked in a room and when you turn in 30 songs they let you out of the room but this man has made so many outstanding songs and i would be interested to see pile up all the chart topping hits that desmond child can take credit for and see who else even comes that close to having like like such a vast amount of content.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can I can say to you, um, there's a common criticism in pop music, actually criticism uh, right now, like just just in what people discuss. Where there's a discussion about pop music, more or less, a lot of it, quote unquote, sounding the same. A big reason why a lot of it sounds the same is that a lot of it is written by the same few guys. Sure. Some of whom we've heard of and some of whom we haven't. Uh, Andy, I assume you know who Dr. Luke is. Nope. Interesting. Okay, so Dr. Luke uh, is an American songwriter who has done a lot of this. He's, He's responsible for a ton of people's hits you know he's written for pink he's written for katy perry and avril levine he did since you've been, been gone for katie clark for kelly clarkson he's written for britney spears and Nicki minaj and rihanna and ti and flo rida and miley cyrus and neo and shakira and pitbull most people these days know him as the guy who wrote a lot of music for kesha and also sexually
0: assaulted her oh that's Dr. Luke. Then I have heard of him. I hope you're somewhere. Praying, praying. Yes. And that's
1: and but that's the interesting thing. Most people didn't know who Doctor Luke was until it was discovered the horrible things that he had done to one of the artists he was working with.
0: Right.
1: But to say that Doctor Luke, like his So much of his work, he has made so much money for these artists and record labels, so much of his work is embedded into the public consciousness, and people don't even know what he's done or what he's been involved with. The other major songwriter who gets called out into this is Max Martin, who I believe is a Swedish writer and producer who kind of made his bones and got famous by more or less... uh, being the songwriting architect for what you and i remember as the early 2000s late 90s like boy band girl band pop sure like he wrote baby one more time he wrote i want it that way he wrote it's gonna be me but he's also like nowadays if anyone knows who he is he's most well known as the guy who co-wrote every song taylor swift does guess what everyone taylor swift doesn't Write all of her songs by herself. Maybe there was a time when that was true with those early albums, but her last, I think, three or four, pretty much every song has been written or co written with Max Martin. My favorite Taylor Swift songs were largely written by Max Martin. And there's a dirty secret in the music industry. Um, it's a phrase called change a word, get a third.
0: Mm, which sure, is. Sure
1: if one if one person writes the music and one person writes the lyrics you get the artist in the studio and have them make minor changes they change a g7 chord to a g major 7 chord they change a couple of lines in the lyric sheet they're now entitled to a third of the royalties on that song for the songwriters and for the marketing people you know this admittedly that means they're paying the artist a little bit more and paying themselves a little bit less despite the fact that the artist didn't do very much for it but the good thing there is that when they're marketing it, they can now have now they can have Taylor Swift go out there and tell a story about how she worked on writing this song. And then when Rob Sheffield or some other music critic looks up the notes on the song, they can see, okay, no, she is credited as having written on this song. Yeah, Granted, sure. amongst other people, but she has that credit. So they can't really call her integrity into question on it
0: and it's interesting cuz i mean there isn't the same mystique with say television you know you you know that writers rooms exist for for comedy shows but you know for for dramas as well yeah maybe you've got a showrunner who or a, or a head writer but you know it's no it's no secret that multiple people write tv it's no secret multiple people write movies i can't recall but we were we were discussing something about about book writing and you brought up the point of like you know somebody doesn't write a book alone they've got an editor they've got other people they've got support structure music and maybe this is just my own angle of the lens on it music there always has seemed to be this like you said dirty little secret the secrecy of of the singer is not always the songwriter. And I don't know. I like, I like getting the curtain peeled back a bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, the change there was with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the British invasion, like, because those guys wrote a lot of their songs. They did not write all of their songs. They covered songs. And when they covered their songs, when the Beatles went up there and did good golly, miss Molly, Before they played it, they said, "We're gonna play you a song by one of our favorite artists. This is Little Richard by his record," and then they do "Good Golly, Miss Molly." Uh, But they also wrote a lot of their own songs. That was just that's a weird thing that the English, that a lot of English songwriters were doing. Def Leppard talked about how like it was always strange to them that American bands always seemed to start off playing covers. British bands largely just wrote their own stuff to start with. So, Hmm. but but basically. Before the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the British Invasion, Elvis never wrote a single song he ever recorded. Ever. Frank Sinatra didn't write music. Frank Sinatra had people... Frank Sinatra had Quincy Jones writing his music. And then Frank Sinatra would come in, and his role in the process was to infuse it with the performance. To bring out... To bring his own emotion to it. To bring a sense of... That, that was the point for him, his his artistry didn't come from composition; it came from performance. Elvis's came from performance. Hell, in the 1960s, there was this. There's a place called the Brill Building, which I have thought about making you know a love for an episode at some point. But the Brill Building was basically you know this building in I believe New York City where professional songwriters like Neil Sedaka. And who we've talked about on a previous episode, um, our Nickelback haters episode, yep. which I believe was yep. our third, um, and Carol King, and oh God, what were the the Isley Brothers or the people who wrote for the Isley Brothers? I'm trying to remember the names of the people who wrote for a lot of them. Alex, anyway, your your
0: knowledge of music is already encyclopedic for me. You don't have to. You don't have to try to impress. Okay. <laughs> but the,
1: but but the point is, it was a whole building uh, with people just. Sitting in the building writing songs at the end of the day, they'd present their songs, and whichever was the best song that day again, written in like a cubicle on a piano or guitar, they'd present all the songs, and whoever won it got got an eyes had the Isley brothers record that, or had the Ronettes record it, or had you know the Righteous brothers record it. That's how that's where you get like Dream Lover and hello baby and calendar girl and all of those old 60s like all those bobby darren songs that is interesting that are like that are like classics all of them were written in this one building by like the same 20 people that was normal until the beatles and the rolling stones that was normal and after that that's when people were like oh real artists are the ones who write their own songs and there were people who wrote their own songs bob dylan wrote his own songs okay that was considered nice but it wasn't considered like a requirement for artistry until we get to like the 70s and then basically it's like okay led zeppelin's writing all their own songs black Sabbath's writing all of their own songs billy squire's writing a bunch of his own songs and then later on billy squire started working with desmond child to write new Hmm. songs aerosmith was writing their own songs and then they later worked with songwriters This used to be normal, and I would argue it's okay for artists to not write their own songs. That's not that doesn't make them less of an artist. It just makes them a different kind of artist. Sure,
0: sure. No, I would say. I mean, it's it's at least if it's not the majority of how songs get made, I I still wouldn't call it abnormal. You know, we just were able to look at three different contemporary songwriters. I, I completely agree with you. You know, it's it's funny, I purposefully did not answer the question you started this out, was my favorite songwriter. I purposefully did not say David Bowie, because we've gushed sure. enough. But David Bowie wrote all of his own songs, and he only sang them because uh, the quote he gave is, you know, nobody else was willing to, so he had to. Yeah. <laughs> like... Yeah. So I, I think it's perfectly okay. And it it makes sense if you think about it, that there are some people who are great lyricists. There are some people who are great composers and those people maybe can't sing, or maybe if they can sing, maybe they don't have commercial appeal. And it's, it, it's definitely an industry. And because it's an industry, it shouldn't be a stigma If things are a little, it takes a village when it comes to writing songs, you know, people, people like to talk about production line, like, like production line style, cookie cutter songs or whatever. And eh, sure. There's a criticism there, but I think there's also a a defense to be made for the, the people who do it as well as say Desmond child.
1: Sure. And I mean, I think for me, it's, Part, part of me wanting to point this out is I think I think all these guys, um, all the people we've talked about, and even other professional songwriters, we didn't even mention Linda Perry. Linda Perry is an incredible songwriter who some people probably just know as the lead singer of Four Non Blondes who sang What's Up, but you know, she was also instrumental in writing some really fantastic recent stuff. She wrote for Pink. She's written for Dolly Parton. Um, she's written for tons of people. And for me, the, the thing there isn't like, oh, we should... The criticism about a lot of cookie-cutter songwriting approaches I think comes more from the fact that we keep giving so much business to Dr. Luke and Max Martin. And, you know, you could, you could maybe argue Desmond Child as well, although I have, a so- I have a list of songs written by Desmond Child just in front of me um, that I pulled up from online and i can pull up a list from Max Martin or Dr. Luke or either of those guys and their lists are four or five times longer than Desmond Child's. Desmond Child doesn't Desmond Child is okay with writing a song a song for an artist, having one song on there that's his and then letting other songwriters do stuff with them or letting the artist write a bunch of songs or co-writing. He doesn't need to write a whole album. The way the way You know, I got a vinyl of 1989, you know, sitting in the other room, and it says, all songs by Max Martin and Taylor Swift. Period. Desmond Child doesn't have that. Um, So he's less of an issue here. But I'm okay with more songwriters getting in there, more diverse songwriters. The thing I love about Desmond Child is, you know, he writes in three languages. He writes in English, Hungarian, and Spanish. He writes, he can do dream theater, which is, like, weird progressive metal but he can also do fucking jesse mccartney or meatloaf or you know he can do pop and rock and metal and his and like various latin music and country music and i want more diverse songwriters of that ilk desmond child's great because he's diverse ethnically sure that's wonderful but he's also diverse in genre if we get more songwriters who are able to do this kind of stuff Like who have their own style, sure, but more of them working with these artists, I think that that's just more diverse songs, more interesting songs. The problem isn't getting more artists to write their own songs. It's getting these handful of assholes to write fewer. Actually, I have nothing against Max Martin. Dr. Luke's a rapist, but Max Martin's probably a perfectly nice guy, but he's writing too much shit. I want more songwriters writing more stuff, you know?
0: Sure, with anything. It's it's often better to have more people than less and and entertainment is something we often monopolize but probably shouldn't i i I completely have your back on that one
1: yeah so i'm gonna close this out um i mean there's there's more things i can say about desmond child um you know he's by all indications i have seen he is one of the most creative men i've seen working in the music industry Um, he's, again, he represents a diversity of influences and just he in and of himself. I learned from this research that he's actually, um, he and his husband appeared in a documentary talking about their struggles with, uh, surrogate adoption, uh, that ends with, the birth of their two twin sons, which was lovely. I didn't even know that. Um, he contributed music for, I believe the Hungarian national anthem, which, uh after our star-spangled banner discussion i was like yo how friggin like wonder oh oh, no sorry it wasn't it was the official anthem of the 60th anniversary commemorations of the hungarian revolution in 1956 so he did not write the hungarian national anthem but he wrote an anthem for hungary and i'm sitting here going like really america you can't get people to write new anthems for you because this motherfucker just did it for Hungary, and he was born in Gainesville, Florida. Um, that's besides <laughs> the point. He represents a lot. Of, no, I'm, he represents a lot of incredible things for me. Ah, um, oh, hell, I like that he's Latin American sure. too. Like, I like seeing that kind of thing represented in here. I, I, it doesn't get emphasized a whole lot. For God's sake, his last name is Child. I'm like, mm. that doesn't immediately read Cuban, but you know, matrilineal. He's of mixed ethnicity, and he's just an really his work has stood a test of time it's identifiable it's important to me and I wanted to share that with all of you and you know just kind of put it out there that songwriting as a craft in and of itself much like we talked about with voice acting It's so underappreciated and it would be really great if we could give it a little more attention and a little more respect just because an artist uses songwriters does not make them less of an artist and songwriters themselves are not failed musicians like they do they do the work so that's the part I want to end on I will leave it to you to bring in our hate topic
0: sure (laughs) yeah so thank you for bringing this up I I think discovering a thing that's new is or at least a thing that isn't widely talked about is is one of the one of my favorite things about this this show and this project with you. So good on you, man. Mm. One of my other favorite things is to, you know, take pot shots at something that is just completely stupid and inane. And that's what we're going to do today as I talk about why I hate Paradise Cove or no, sorry, Paradise Hotel a uh, contemporary reality tv show now alex let me ask you in this age of of streaming services it it can be pretty easy to avoid modern like commercials did you had you ever heard of this show before i sent you my notes about it
1: i'll be honest with you no i knew there was a show by that name because i feel like i had heard people like Much like other shows, if it's ilk, like The Bachelor, I have heard people talk about, or 90 Day Fiance. Like, these are shows I've heard people make jokes about while talking about other things. And I've just kind of gone, oh, okay, so that's just, I assume that's a reality show. I remember when The Bachelor was on when I was, you know, when I had cable. Like, okay, I assume this is just another reality show. I didn't know the premise of this. I don't know anything about it. And then you sent me <laughs> these notes and I'm horrified. So I'm excited to get into yeah, it.
0: So for those of you who don't get our weekly emails to each other, um, paradise hotel is a reality show with a premise that is just so insane that I honestly, I had to see this commercial on Hulu a couple different times before I was like, sure it was a real thing and not some secretly brilliant meta comedy show. It's free real estate. We're giving you land. It's free. We're giving you a house. It's real estate free. It's a free house for you, Jim. This is free real estate. The, the premise of Paradise Hotel is it is a reality TV show that features a large odd numbered group of attractive adults who are brought to a five star super fancy resort and people get eliminated every episode how are people eliminated i hear you ask at the end of every night contestants need to pair up and share a hotel room with the implication that they are going to you know go do it And whoever is left without a partner gets kicked off the island. And I just want to let that marinate (laughs) because that's all there is to the show. This is a TV show where we watch hot people scheme and manipulate and then go do it. Only you don't even go see them do it because it's a network reality show. So they're, they're going to censor that and, and save it for the, uh, you know, unre- unrated DVD sales later. This is lowest common denominator entertainment. I, I, I really think that. This is the dumbest, laziest. Hey, what do people like? Uh, people like watching hot people fight. They also like watching hot people, like, make out and do it. Okay. We're going to make a show about that now and like i'm just this this is a hate i'm more perplexed about than anything else i i hate that this exists dearly because it this is more creatively bankrupt than anything we've talked about in my opinion this is taking a single premise and throwing it out the wall and so just it's kind of interesting to me this isn't the first time paradise hotel has been a show apparently and i didn't know okay. this it's the third time this originally aired in 2003 and lasted a season it, it, it then got a reboot in 2008 and lasted a season and now in 2019 we're we're giving it the third times a third times a charm magic and seeing if if now our entertainment culture is ready to watch a tv show where hot people like shack up. So I'm trying
1: to process the existence yeah,
0: of this, as you should.
1: I, I, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I've never watched reality TV. I, I'm not. I, I have watched some very stupid reality TV in my time. Uh, I have been on record as saying that I have watched several seasons of The Surreal Life, which is basically the real world with C-list celebrities, uh, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. Do you remember a show, like, way back as the reality TV boom was just getting started, called Temptation Island? I do not. Okay, if I remember the premise of Temptation Island well enough. It was there were a bunch of couples uh, that were sent to this like tropical paradise island and basically made to, a bunch of heterosexual couples and they were basically made to have a whole, they were separate, you would be separated from your partner and made to interact with all of the people of the opposite sex who are on the island and do like challenges with them or go on like dates on the island with them. The idea being, let's see if these people's relationships are strong enough to overcome these weird gross situations that were putting yeah, I putting
0: gross up. is the right word for that
1: yeah and i remember see i, I remember watching a few episodes of this show and i think I, at a certain point i just kind of got bored of it and stopped watching it but i remember like watching some of it because i was 12 and there were people in bikinis in the commercials and that was the extent of my like interest sure. in it thank
0: you god <laughs>
1: this feels like something definitely along that similar vein um i think you mentioned in your notes here that you haven't actually watched an episode of it
0: correct i uh unlike you when, when you take a hate you really like to subject yourself to it and and listen to a bunch of post malone and and dive into it and i i, I didn't Ugh. have it in me to to watch this for for, for our ah. topic today
1: all right, that's all right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not mad at you for that or anything, and I'm not trying to question it as a hate because of that. More, more than anything, I'm curious, like obvious for anyone who doesn't, who thinks that reality TV is reality TV, it's really not reality TV. The thing I'm curious about is if the way that they structure, you know, people's speech in this and the way the scene interactions go. Um, do you remember next?
0: The movie, the band, what are we talking about?
1: No, next the the reality, sh- not the kind of game show. Next, where there'd be like a person who would go on like these sh- these multiple dates with somebody, and they would have to um, if the, if the date wasn't going well, they would just go next, and the next person on the bus would come oh, on.
0: No, that's interesting though.
1: Okay, okay, that was a garbage MTV reality show, but um, the only reason I mention it is because it was a show where it was so disgustingly obvious that everyone on this show was being fed lines like i think i think aziz ansari um all caveats about aziz ansari on the table uh i think aziz ansari had a bit about it where he talked about watching this show and it being just The worst dialogue where you know they'd be interviewing someone going on one of these dates and it would be a woman who would go, If he's got a neck tattoo, I'm gonna lick it.
0: (laughs) Okay. Right. You're you're dredging up some memories here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or a guy going like, Yo, this bet this girl better be cute, because if she's a pain in the ass, I'm gonna need something cute to look at. Like just the Here's the thing. If that's real dialogue. They have found the worst humans in the world. And if it's not real dialogue, I mean, it's not much better because it means that someone had to write it and then feed it to these people and try and pretend that they can deliver it sincerely. And I just kind of want to know if that's the level of production value brought to something like Paradise Hotel. I haven't... I don't watch cable. I I don't have cable, Um and that's not a value judgment. It's a it's a monetary thing and a time thing more than anything else. This premise just
0: It's so gross. Right, like, and so you watch Rock of Love. You, you, specifically, like, yes. I that is like the one romance reality TV show that I can sit here and say I've actually watched a full season of
1: never introduce myself i'm gonna get you off like there's no one else yeah i remember rock of love and i remember flavor of love and i remember watching like storylines where the you know the dude who is the object of interest in those shows quote like inviting the girls in for a nightcap right. quote unquote and I remember seeing and it and it was all it was so formulaic, because always the the one who was invited in for the nightcap always ended up not being the one who won. Which makes for very gripping television because it's totally a, okay, well, they just they just screwed this person, and then they screwed this person. And and I remember watching it then and just kind of going, okay, this feels really emotionally manipulative and icky and wrong. And this kind of looks like a whole show of that,
0: you know? Pretty much. I mean, like, my, my big A-list material joke I put in the notes was, like, this, this isn't even Game of Thrones where you actually see them have sex. This is just a whole show based around hey are these people gonna do it or are these people gonna do it oh they're forming an alliance i bet they're gonna do it like and and that's it that's that's all there is to the show it's it's desperate that you the consumer are gonna go man i wish i could watch a bunch of hot people fight and bone but, oh, what am I to do? I'm not going to look up, I don't know, a real good fictional show or even some porn. <laughs> Let me, okay,
1: I'm going to ask, I apologize to everyone ahead of time. Uh, because I don't, I, I, I really hope the wrong implication is not gotten from this question. Andy would the show be better if you actually saw boning no (laughs) okay good i was real concerned that that question would suggest would sound like me suggesting well why don't they just put boning in it that's not what i want (laughs) i'm just trying to figure out like would that be more sincere would that i
0: don't know man it it might be a little more sincere it certainly wouldn't be any less icky i just because because that's the thing for it for me like if this was i don't know if this was some weird skinamax reality tv show i i wouldn't watch it but i'd get it i'd, I'd understand sure. its existence a little more sure i mean it just it's lazy it's it's the laziest thing i've ever i've ever heard of
1: i mean what's reality tv if not It's hard to even call it lazy, because they put a lot of time and effort into casting just the worst people that will inspire the worst, or rather the best, most entertaining, most fucked up uh, B-roll footage, that they can then cut together into the narratives. Like, people come out of reality TV shows like this, and they say, they will say stuff like, Okay, when you watch that episode and it cuts away from me to the other person and you hear my voice, that was not me in that conversation. That was taken from like four days later in a completely different context and they edited it so that my voice would say that right then. Yes, I said those words. I said those words in a totally different situation on a totally different day in a totally different context. And it was used to manipulate the storyline of that particular episode. Like... The editors on reality TV shows work their asses off.
0: Oh, absolutely. No, yes. I mean any any TV show has a baseline amount of production value put into it and the baseline is a substantial amount. But but just in the in in the pitch room, I guess I guess specifically in the pitch room back in 2002, you know, reality is really starting to peak as a entertainment form and somebody just goes oh what if what if it was survivor but instead of on a desert island they're in a hotel and instead of having to eat bugs they got a bone and somebody gave that man a promotion (laughs) and it was a man
1: it had to have been a
0: man oh absolutely no i don't i don't hate reality tv show i don't i don't hate reality tv show or I don't even dislike reality TV as much as I used to, because I've, I've come around and realized, like, I, I enjoy a good competitive reality show. I, I absolutely love RuPaul's Drag Race. I like Survivor. 13th person voted out of Survivor Guatemala. Judge. out, wow. But the romance ones... I do take a bit more of an issue with, and and even, you know, you know, bachelor is still going on. They just, they just keep oh, yeah. doing it over and over and over again because there's a market for it. But even bachelor, even rock and flavor and shot of love, there was always this, I'm trying to find the one. And there was this, at least attempt to create an extra emotional tether of true love is on the line. Here specifically true love is not on the line because you can't just have people pair up and then that's the rest of the show. Your, your contestants have to, you know, betray each other or, or decide they don't want to sleep with that same guy again. And, and the only way the show works is if there is a baseline promiscuity going around it's not about love it's about getting like I want to say a hundred grand or 200 grand prize money if you are the last person on or 250 thousand dollars I'm looking at it right here the the winner of the show doesn't yeah. receive two love they true love they receive a quarter of a million dollars and love, true love. like and
1: presumably it's the last couple that wins that the last two people.
0: Yes. Yeah, like okay. with, with, without knowing, so, I I assume it has to be because how do you split? Yeah, up?
1: so yeah, so if that's the way that the show works, and, and I'm, all apologies if I have it wrong. Like honestly, uh, sincerely, and if we have it wrong, please let us know. We will issue corrections in our show notes. Like one hundred percent. If that's the premise, the way to win this show is basically at the beginning of the show you find somebody else and the two of you just continuously pick one another every single episode and you just make it all the way through to the end. Maybe there's a rule in the show that says you're not allowed to have like two evenings in a row with somebody or something like that. Like that seems like a really decent way to do that. But presumably you, if that's even doable, it does not take a terribly nefarious approach to win this. All it takes is making, like, a smart alliance with someone early on, and you could, without too much risk or difficulty, win this. And that's where the casting of these shows tends to come in, because they'll straight-up personality profile somebody for the most fucked-up things they possibly can do. Make sure they have people with severe trust issues or insecurity issues or alcoholism and histories of, like, impulsive behavior. They will make sure, like, they have personality profile people at the casting stuff in order to create the most volatile groups they possibly can. They invest in that. That's probably where a good chunk of the budget of these shows does go, is on getting that kind of casting. So what you're basically doing is watching people who largely have some kind of personality disorders or other issues interacting with each other in a box,
0: which, I mean, sadly, there's a market for. I mean, Jersey Shore was a thing. Yeah. Sure. I keep
1: saying, I keep, throughout this discussion, I keep being like, hey, Andy, have you seen this reality show? Hey, Andy, have you seen this reality show? Um, I got one more for you, which is, did you ever watch Supergroup? No. Okay, so Supergroup was a VH1 reality show, the premise of which was they got... Ted Nugent, Sebastian Bach, Jason Bottom, uh, Evan Seinfeld from Biohazard and Scott Ian from Anthrax, in a house together to form a band. And at the end of, they had to do stuff like they had to come up with a name and they had to write a song and they had to come up with a set list. and at the end of the show, they would do uh, they would do a performance. They only did the show once because honestly, if you go through it, it wasn't terribly interesting. And the kind of stuff that they did that clearly the producers did to try and stir up controversy or trouble were real True. dumb. Like there was like there was one point where Jason Bonham had to leave for a few days to go play a gig. So there's an episode where he's in at the beginning and he comes home at the end. And in the in-between, they hire a like the producers hire a beatboxer to come in and help them like write songs and work on their and work on their rehearsals and they're like why the fuck would we why would sebastian bach ted nugent evan seinfeld and scott ian ever want to work with a beatboxer let's just be fair about this if you know anything about any of those bands that's not their vibe and obviously they don't even meet with the beatboxer they show the beatboxer standing in the rehearsal space beatboxing and they literally just like walk out of the room and are like, "No, nope, not working with this guy. We're going to go do other stuff." So, TV-wise, it's pretty lackluster in that in that thing. There's a couple of moments where they're like throw they do some pranks on each other, things like that. It's it was it was okay. If you're a fan of those musicians, it was a fun show to watch, but I distinctly remember a moment during, like, the whole after-the-shows-over interview thing that they do, at the end of these reality shows, like the retrospectives, I remember there being a moment where someone... I want to say it was um, Sebastian Bach, but I might be wrong about this. Sitting there with Eddie Trunk, who was doing the interview. Um, Eddie Trunk is one of the best metal journalists, period, ever. Um, But talking with him and them going it was really weird doing the show because the producers were constantly wanting us to do things to drum up some kind of drama and I kept wondering like wouldn't it be great for us to just do this entire show about the process of us writing a song and like learning each other's styles and coming together like that And and he said like at the time he said I just watched I just bought a new DVD of like Neil Young with a documentary uh, about the making of his newest album. And I loved this documentary. And I'm like, why can't we do something like that? And the producers kept telling us, no audience would watch that. They don't want to watch you write songs. They don't want to watch you rehearse. They don't want to watch you work through chord progressions. They don't want to watch Sebastian Bach try to learn how to cover Out on the Tiles or Ted Nugent learn how to cover a Biohazard song. Like, that's not interesting to audiences. And I'm sitting here going, like, I would watch that shit. But they're not wrong. That's not the thing that gets you on primetime, you know? That's not the thing that gets huge ratings. And case in point, they did a little of that, tried to do the usual drama stuff, and Supergroup never had a second season. Nobody cared. Except, like, me. (laughs) Right. You know?
0: no it's it, it's a more insidious reality of uh, of reality tv really and um i'll save my railings on that and how people are sheep who only want to watch conflict for a later time i i, I want to wrap up because our question's a, a really fascinating one this time but I do, uh, I do want to offer a little bit of hope for anyone who is as disgusted as we are at the, at the TV show we've been talking about. I did not know this when I sent you the notes, but in the past four days, Paradise Hotel has been canceled. <laughs> so after four episodes, the highest rating scale they had was like a hundred or no, uh, a million people. We're, we're watching the second episode or something that is okay. minuscule for comparison. Another perplexingly bad reality TV show, the masked singer where somebody dances and sings around in a mascot costume. And then the judges have to guess what D list celebrity they are had a opening of 256 million viewers. So this, this thing, this, this dumb, stupid thing, and again, I, I did not know this when I decided to make it my hate, but I, I looked a little more into it and found this out. Even this dumb, stupid thing is too dumb, stupid for the average television consumer, and, and that gives me a, a spark of hope in my creative heart for the integrity of, of content and, and entertainment moving forward but this this thing has been canceled twice over who's to say in another 5 years it's not going to come back or you know they're they're finally going to find just one little gimmick they can add to make this thing at least a a modicum of more interesting and yeah they can always exactly. add celebrities so mm. i wanted to start our our second year with my hate being being a little a little lighter a little a little less existentially terrifying, and it turns out I hate Paradise Hotel and a lot of other people hated Paradise Hotel and for that I thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, that's a great note to end on my friend uh shall we get to our very yeah, heavy question
0: so. <laughs> I, I, I decided to make my hate lighthearted, and then coincidentally, our our question's a doozy. Uh, but here we go. Hey, LHR. I took a DNA test just for fun, the type that you spit in a little cup and then get emailed with your results. When I first got my DNA results back, I was really confused because I knew my dad's heritage and the results weren't matching up with what I was told. I was looking around on the website and discovered DNA matches. I saw that I was matched with people who had my mom's maiden name, which makes sense, and my mom's ex-fiancé's last name. My mom did have a fiancé when she met my dad, but ultimately ended up marrying my dad. There were points in my childhood when she would see her ex. For instance, they worked together for a while. My family always says I got all of the recessive traits because I don't look like the rest of my family. But now I'm realizing I look like my mom's ex. I don't want to break up my parents' marriage, but I feel sad knowing that my dad isn't my real dad. Where do I go from here? And uh, this isn't a Game of Thrones spoiler, but topically this is signed from Jon Snow. Then there are no more answers, only better and better lies. And lies won't help us in this fight.
1: Oh, and unlike Jon Snow, this particular writer inner is uh, burdened <laughs> with knowledge, and knows a lot more than nothing.
0: Absolutely. Uh so <sighs> I, I, I.
1: Would you like me to get started, well, or do I, I want to say one front.
0: thing and then I want to let you go, um, Jon Snow? Okay. Your dad is absolutely your real dad. You know if. If more children's shows and movies and not even, not even children's movies, but if, if media and pop culture has taught me anything, it's that it's not the person who sired you that is your dad. It's the person that raised you. So Ned Stark is your dad and that's fine. I don't think you need to worry that he's not. And, and really, all that much doesn't need to be different with you guys. But I want to give Alex the, the floor here.
1: Uh, no, you know what? I think that's a great thing to emphasize up front. Uh, I'm a firm believer in found family. And anyone who thinks that... Anyone who thinks that genetics are the most important thing in that kind of relationship needs to do a lot of deprogramming. And... There are people I know listening to this podcast who aren't biologically related to certain family members who are incredibly important to them, and they would back me up on that. And I know there are a few people listening who don't agree with me on that, and you're wrong. And I will happily tell you you're wrong. Again, love you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Who am I talking about? Anyway... Um, as to you, Jon Snow, you're kind of asking a couple of things. Um, you're first of all saying you're sad, finding out about your uh, non-biological father, who is your father. Um, I'm going to say your father and your biological father. That's how I'm going to choose to cut this up, um, because I don't watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> but you do have the question about your parents' marriage. And this, this to me is the harder question to answer because, you know, you making peace with your father's non-biological connection is something you can do through patience and work and time and effort and everything that we normally discuss. The question of telling your father about this, I mean, that's a little more complicated because you're right. This is a different relationship. Um, you say you don't want to break up your parents' marriage, which communicates to me that you're taking a lot of this onto yourself. Like you are the one, let me, let me be up front. You have done nothing wrong. You are a complete Absolutely. innocent in this situation. You know, you didn't, none of us ask for our parentage. Those of us who have great parents, those of us who have shite parents, those of us who have okay parents, those of us who are close to our parents, not close to our parents, none of us choose our parents. Not a one of us. Um, you didn't choose this situation. This is something that was foisted upon you. You are now burdened with this knowledge. And it's a great burden because, you know, you do... E- even though this is not your fault, it is now your burden. Because you know this thing. And, you know, it is entirely possible your parents know this. It's possible your father knows this. It's possible that he doesn't. You, you don't know that and you can't know that. Um, so... That's, that's really the hard decision that you have to make here. I would ask you to take a look at the relationship you have with your father. And I the, the ethical idealist in me, the person who's, who believes that there is a right and a wrong, says that the best thing to do would be to tell him that he has a right to know this. Because he does, um, if he doesn't already, you know, if he's under the impression that you two are biologically related, that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think someone should yeah. always get to know. Um, but the more complicated moralistic question here is: I don't. We don't know anything about your dad. We don't know what kind of relationship you have with him. Um, we don't know if this is the kind of. You know, worst-case scenario, your dad could take this information and it could cause him to have a very, frankly, understandable reaction. It could end your parents' marriage, though you are not ending your parents' marriage. He and your mother are ending that marriage. Your mother, by... Deceit, if this is truly deceit, and him by choosing to walk away in that moment because of that deceit. Whether or not any of that's justified is between them, but that's not on you. And I don't know, again, not knowing anything about your dad, it's possible that if he, with this information, it could estrange you to him. We're telling you, your dad is your dad because your dad is the person who has been your dad your whole life. We don't know if he feels the same way. I'm not saying that as a, you don't know. You probably know. You probably know your dad well enough to guess how he would react to this. Um, And whether or not it would change your relationship. We don't know that based on your question. But that's something to consider here. I also a little bit wonder how old you are. You know? If you're 16 and you're writing this and this could break your family up, this knowledge... Um, and you don't want to split home like that. I get it. That's self preservation. If you're, you know, our age, if you're living on your own, if this is another thing, that does change it. So I think right now I'm just kind of listing variables because there isn't an easy yeah, answer. Yeah,
0: and this one. Uh, I'll, I'll take this moment to swoop back in. Um, I, I I think there are a couple of things um one of which i i would say you need to do before talking to your dad john snow and the first thing the thing i think you need to do is talk to your mom because mm, maybe definitely. she doesn't realize maybe she didn't know i mean it, i i would assume she knew what she was doing with her fiance at the time before meeting your dad and, and marrying him but You know this this you you found this out by complete happenstance and absolutely i think you need to talk to your mom first and establish what she knows and that carries its own risk you know that might be a very shameful thing i i would encourage you to encourage her that it doesn't need to be but i think you need to check in with your mom and you say there are, you, you allude to all these clues about your biological father, but what you don't say is that you know for a fact he's your biological father. And I, I only bring that up just because knowledge is power. And if this guy isn't, then creating a dynamic under the assumption that he is, isn't going to serve you any good. You know, it sounds like he's kind of still in the picture. You know, you talk about how they worked for a while. I'm assuming that means no. Yeah. You, you, you make it clear they worked for a while after they broke up. Um, I don't know if this guy is a family friend. I don't know if the relationship with your mother ended poorly or not. Um, but i think you need to talk to your mom i would i think something you can do is talk to the ex-fiance the assumed biological father and i mean heck maybe get him to do the dna test and and that way you can confirm and so you you do all that You've, you've got a little more knowledge with which to get to what you really want to do which is figure out the best way to tell your dad and talk to your dad and i mean yeah this this is a heavy one like i said your dad's your dad you don't need to worry about that but i can't sit here and especially not knowing your parents say that there isn't a possibility that this could cause a major rift in your parents relationship um I think you you gotta treat it gently. I I'm gonna say something and it's gonna sound a little weird. I think you need to make sure the test isn't somewhere your dad can see the results until you're ready to tell him. And mm. I feel a little bleh about advocating you not telling him but i do think that this is the sort of thing where it's better to wait for the right moment to tell him than for him to see oh oh what did johnny get this 23 and me thing for oh wait what do these mean none of none of these are are from scandinavia you know the all, all i mean to say is the worst thing that could happen is is your dad comes to you with this because then it's a, why didn't you tell me? Sure.
1: Um, I think that's really smart. Uh, and I'm going to use Andy's really smart advice and give you a little bit of a blueprint, a little bit of a verbal flow chart, as it were. Not a flow chart person, but I- I'm going to give you a list of priorities, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a guideline, Jon Snow. And um, hopefully it helps. So, first and foremost, before you make any decision, take, make sure that your safety, your well-being, and your stability are not at risk. Again, if you're 14, and this is the kind of thing that could break up your household, that's the kind of thing you need to be thinking about. Because your stability matters. Your well-being matters. This is why we, you know, this is why even though it sucks shit, we are understanding when queer kids say that they don't feel safe coming out to their parents and make decisions to safeguard themselves because the practical realities of your safety are important so first and foremost is judge the practical your practical safety and well-being if that's fairly secure if you're an adult you're reasonably sure that your you know your household is secure or something along those lines next is going to be your emotional experience of all this it's okay to mourn the biological, the, your understood biological relationship yeah. to your dad. Yes, we are going to continue to argue your dad is your dad. But there is something to that emotional investment of biological connection. And it's okay to take some time to mourn that. If, if it looks reasonably certain that you don't have that. Take that time and shore up your relationship with your dad For yourself and for him before taking before making the next decision after that take andy's advice and probably talk to your mom first and foremost because again there is a possibility that this whole thing is something your parents both know very well and have just chosen for some reason to hide from you there are a number of adoptive parents who don't reveal their parentage to their kids until adulthood, or if ever, um, because there's this very stupid belief that biology is the most important thing, and if you don't know that you're biologically related to your parents, you're gonna, I don't know, hate them or something. I don't know. It's it's a very dumb, antiquated notion that should be that should be left behind. But who knows? Your parents could be doing something like that. You don't know. This could be something your parents worked through a long time ago and have just not felt comfortable telling you yet so first open it up to your mom based on how that goes if it looks like you're right about this the next step to me the next step is then deciding about telling your dad you could decide not to based on the information your mother provides Or you could decide that it's the only way to go. Based on what she tells you and what information you have, that's the point at which you make that decision. The right thing to do is to tell your dad. That's not a question. But just because it's the right thing to do doesn't mean that it is the smart thing to do just yet. That's the assessment you'll have to make. So get the information from your mom after you've already taken care of your safety and your own emotional well-being. Talk to your mom. Then decide when you'll talk to your dad or if but it Sounds like you have a good sense of this Jon Snow. So I think it's going to be a win Um, let us know how it goes Honestly, we we would really and if there's any support we can give if there's any Resources we can direct you to um, I'm going to tell you right now. You're not alone in this. Uh, I've read a little bit about how there are a lot of people whose lives have kind of been blown up by DNA testing and they've discovered things about their parentage or their heritages, which have ranged from racists finding out that they're actually part black to people who have, you know, ha- proposed that they've been very proud of their Italian heritage or Greek heritage or Saxon heritage or something discovering, oh no, actually we're, insert, totally other thing we're actually german as fuck who the hell knows um all the way to people finding out exactly what you found out that you know their what they thought were their bio was their biological heritage is not um there's a really great article in the atlantic called uh when a dna test shatters your identity that i'm gonna link to in the show notes but uh check that out there's a uh, you know, there's Facebook groups for this. There's therapy groups for this. There's support groups for this. And I highly recommend checking all of that out. Uh, and again, if there's any support that we can give you, any resources we can provide, we have a resources page on our website and you can feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to point you in the right direction. Uh, and we will safeguard your privacy and everything. So yeah, that's that's where I am. Andy, you have any other uh, final thoughts for Jon Snow? I'm
0: just, it's going to be okay. I, I get a sense from your message that the worst case scenarios are not likely. Um, and I want to give you some conviction and, and you know help you not be worried about this. I think Alex has given you a fantastic blueprint. and you know your, your heart's in the right place. You're worried about your family and as the optimist of between the two of us i'm i'm going to tell you that your family will make it out fine there might be some rough moments might be some long hard conversations but i i think you're going to be okay but other than that you know thank you so much for reaching out to us and this is one i'm very much going to be interested and you know wanting to hear an update on what you decide to do and how it goes so you can reach us for updates and all of you internet friends can reach us for questions uh, at love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com and we will take your relationship questions whether they are silly ones about pets or co-workers or even the heavier ones about you know familial revelations and we promise to listen to them and we promise to give you the best if unqualified advice we can give you for those
1: absolutely you can subscribe to us on itunes google play stitcher spotify youtube or even TuneIn radio hey mom uh, we would also love it if you reviewed us on any or all of those. Um, it's a new year for love hate relationship, so it'd be great if we could come into that year with I don't know <laughs> more of what we've built on. So, and you can give us that more uh, by again subscribing to us and putting us through there uh we've even got some internalized changes on the way on on our end most of which i don't think will affect you guys that much but putting it out there uh we are working on this show you can also tweet us at lhrpod that's lhrpod with your questions and you can follow us there to keep that's up right. with and new episodes if you episodes. want
0: to follow us personally uh, i'm andy Bowell and i am jovo cop two one one three on twitter
1: And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, y'all. Welcome to the new year. And as always, tell your enemies.